Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. It's a great day to get together to explore and discover what God has for each of us in these next few moments. He's always doing something new, drawing us closer, deepening our spiritual roots, and making us a little more like Jesus. Even when His work is behind the scenes and we don't get to see instant results, we can trust that He is at work and His work is always good. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the team here at Dayspring. We're in the business of helping people figure out what it looks like to become more like Jesus in their lives. We love to help people figure out the next step on their spiritual journey. Since you are people, that means you. We're praying for you. If you're visiting Dayspring today, we want you to know that we are a come-as-you-are kind of church. We're a church of good old regular people. People trying to clean up their messy lives one step in the right direction at a time. Which means that no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, this is a good place to be in process, figuring it out. We haven't arrived yet, so we can be good company on the journey. Even if you aren't sure the Christian life is a journey you want to be on, this is a good place to ask questions as you look for answers. So welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find a discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Now, let's join our service. Okay, as I've said, we've got a lot to cover today, so we're going to dive right in. Uh, Welcome to week four of Harnessing the Power of Words. Words matter. Words matter because words are powerful, far more powerful than we pay attention to most of the time. In fact, most of the time, we're pretty casual about the words we speak. Uh, We barely think through what we're saying before we say it, let alone consider the impact of our words on the person we're saying them to, or the impact on the person that the person we are speaking to will be speaking to when they can't help but pass on that juicy tidbit. Is it any wonder that James, the half-brother of Jesus, described the tongue as a small flame of fire with the power to set your whole life ablaze? Uh, For those of you who might have missed any of the other messages in this series, that's where we started, in James. Uh, He taught us that the ability to control the tongue is a sign of uh, maturity on our spiritual journey, uh, to think like, believe like, and act like Jesus. It is the most visible or maybe the most verbal sign of the work God has already done in other areas of our life. It's a sign of a heart oriented to the things of God and surrendered to the work of God. And the lack of tongue control is our tell. It reveals heart-level problems that still need to be oriented and surrendered to the work of God in our lives, which is great in a way, Because the areas of my life where I lack tongue control reveal the areas of my life that still need to be surrendered. If you ever get stuck and wonder what God might want to do next in your life, follow your tongue. 
Just stick out your tongue and see where it goes. It will lead you there. <laughs> On our tongue journey, we also looked at the words of Jesus. He confirmed what we learned from James. Of course, James learned it from him. Jesus is the source, not James. But Jesus confirmed that what comes out of our mouths reveals what's going on in our hearts. And he gave us a pretty good reason to care about the impact of our words on other people. We need to care about our careless words because we'll be held to account for our careless words. Which brings us to the overarching principle that is the foundation for everything for Christ followers. Uh, life for the Hebrew people of the Old Testament was pretty complex. They had 615 laws that they had to follow in order to be in good standing with God. This was the covenant that they agreed to way back in the days of Moses when they had become God's chosen people. We call this the Old Covenant for them, it was just the covenant. Uh, to be helpful, their religious leaders uh, developed lists of clarifications unpacking the application of those laws in different scenarios. For example, observing the Sabbath was one of the 615 laws. And God had given them some specifics of what that meant, but their rabbis had clarified in minute detail what could and could not be done on the Sabbath, what it meant to work, what it meant to travel, etc., etc., etc. Some of their clarifications are really fascinating if you ever have a chance to study it. Uh, by the way, these clarifications may or may not actually line up with what God originally intended. And different rabbis had different opinions making the whole thing confusing for everyone. In the New Testament, several times the Jewish leaders accused Jesus of working on the Sabbath, of breaking the law. He was never actually breaking the law. He just wasn't following one of these clarifications. The bottom line is that following God before Jesus was complex and weighty. It was burdensome. And then along comes Jesus, and he brings what we call the new covenant, and it is way simpler in a way. I mean, there is only one command, so from that aspect, it is easy to remember. It's just not always easy to do. Now, personally, I think since there is only one command to remember, all Christ followers should have this memorized. So let's Read it together from John chapter 13. Use your outside voice for this one. This is Jesus talking. And he says, So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. So one command. Love others like Jesus loved us. In any and every situation, one simple question. What does love require of me in this moment? And for our purposes today, what does love require of me to say or not say in this moment? Because if we're going to love like Jesus, by default, that includes talking like Jesus. Which also means, as the Apostle Paul put it, we will learn to speak the truth in love. Because that ability also helps us become more like Jesus, making it a part of our spiritual growth journey. In the first two weeks of this series, we laid out the theological foundation for our discussions. If you missed those, please feel free to go back and watch them. 
The Bible is filled with wisdom about how we use our words, but a lot less about the art of speaking the truth in love. So last week, we began unpacking some practical applications of what the biblical principles we'd already discovered uh, as, we, as we talked about the relational gaps that we have between us. Since we are all broken people who speak out of our brokenness, have different life experiences, make different assumptions, have different filters and biases, have different unresolved pain, and are at different places in our spiritual journeys, there are and always will be gaps between us. And loving like Jesus means doing everything we can to keep those, those gaps as small as possible for as long as possible which also saves us from having to have yet another one of those dreaded, hard conversations that we all hate. Can we talk? <laughs> Three words none of us like to hear. Uh, you know the conversations I'm talking about. They make our palms sweaty and our tummies rumble. The anticipation of them steals our sleep, even our appetite. We hate them so much that we avoid them like the plague, if we can until we can't, because they're inevitable. So today we're going to continue exploring the practical application of the biblical principles we've already talked about as we look at how to have successful, hard conversations. And the, the first thing we should do before we go any further is reframe that thought. Uh, even the words hard conversation aren't really all that helpful. There isn't any hope in the words hard conversation because the phrase doesn't point to anything. It's just hard. It implies that you're trying to go back to what was before the relationship broke down. The problem is that what was was unhealthy or there wouldn't be a gap the size of the Grand Canyon between you. If you just go back to what was, your hard conversation will end up being a shampoo conversation. Rinse and repeat. It just sets us up for failure. So why would we want to go back to unhealthy? And those aren't the, really the kinds of conversations we're called to have anyway. I mean, think about it. In Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says this. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. If the message about Christ fills our lives, it will overflow into everything we do. It will saturate every conversation with his wisdom, which is a good thing because in every conversation, we represent Jesus and we need his wisdom to do that. What that really means for us is that every conversation has a purpose. We aren't trying to get people to go back to what was. We're calling them to move forward to something better. We want to bring out the best in the other person. We are trying to bring out more of Jesus in someone. Well, and ourselves. 
Remember that the ability to speak the truth in love is about our growth too. So instead of calling those hard conversations, let's add some vision and purpose to them by reframing them as redemptive conversations. If we are going to represent Jesus well, then we have to be about the same things that he was, redeeming the junk for his glory, turning something broken into something beautiful. For a conversation to actually be redemptive, it needs to have three things. First, there needs to be forgiveness. As Christ followers, we are called to forgive, period. Forgiveness isn't optional. However, we often get confused about forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't the last step in the process, it's the first. Again, it's not optional. We are called to forgive. However, the second thing a redemptive process needs is a pathway for trust to be restored. Uh, In most of these kinds of situations, trust has been broken in some way, which is what needs to be forgiven. But trust takes time to restore, and that's okay. And that does not mean that the relationship has to or should stay the same. No one needs to stay with an abuser for trust to be rebuilt. And you might not ever be bosom buddies again with your best friend. That's okay. As I've already said, we're not trying to return to what was because what was wasn't healthy. We want something new to be birthed out of this pain, and that will take time. That will lead to the third thing needed for a redemptive conversation, reconciliation. Reconciliation is the end of the process. It's the settling into the new that you've created where your hearts are in unity once again. And it should be different. The more unhealthy and toxic what was was, the more different it will be. Of course, we are only half of the equation. Whether something is actually redeemed or not is also up to the other person. I've started the process with people who have pulled out of step two and never rebuilt trust, which means that there never was biblical reconciliation in the end. But even if the redemptive conversation is a colossal failure, relationally speaking, if you represent Jesus well in the process, Something is redeemed in you, which still makes it a redemptive conversation. So for those of us who are Christ followers, let's have no more hard conversations. Let's have conversations with a redemptive purpose. As a side note, all of this is true even if your context is a secular workplace. You might have to use other terminology, but the underlying principles are still true and work. And there is no place in your life where you do not represent Christ. You are always Christ's ambassador, even in and probably especially in the secular arena. How else will people be able to experience something different than our culture if not through you? Redemptive conversations have four phases. Now, as I said last week, it's not rocket science even though it seems like it at times. So for fun, let's just picture it that way. Phase one is the countdown phase. 
It's where all of the preparation work has to happen. There is, the more work that's done in this phase, the better chance you have for a successful launch. Phase two is the ignition phase. Every conversation has to have a starting point. Something has to get the ball rolling, or in this case, push the launch button. Phase three is the launch phase, and we have liftoff. The launch button was pushed, and now we're in the conversation. And the last phase is the landing phase. At some point, we have to bring this conversation in for a landing. How are we going to leave things when we're done? Okay, now point of clarification, if there are any actual rocket scientists in the room or watching online, there's no need to write me any hate mail. I know this is way oversimplified. I said it seems like rocket science, not that it is rocket science. So uh, let's start with phase one, the countdown phase. When it comes to preparing for a redemptive conversation, here are some things that you'll want to consider. I've come up with the, an acronym to help make this memorable. The acronym is PICARD, which fits our rocket theme since Captain Picard was the second best Star Trek uh, captain. No hate mail, please. <laughs> Why did your church split? We couldn't decide. And, <laughs> and Emile Picard was a French mathematician, so if you do all of these things, it should add up to a successful redemptive conversation. Okay, enough dad jokes for now. Picard, P-I-C-A-R-D, P stands for pray. Prayer is the only offensive weapon we're going to use in this process. It's not the last thing we do, it's the first. We're inviting Jesus, who we represent, into the process. We want his wisdom and heart. We want to invite him to soften our heart and their heart. We ask him to reveal truth to our heart. He is the source of all truth. So if we're going to speak the truth in love, we need to know what that truth is. We want his truth for us and his truth for them. We're praying that he would help us to identify the core problems and not settle for symptoms. We, we know that he wants to use every situation to make us more like him, so we're praying that he would give us insight into what he wants us to learn. We aren't just praying for the other person to get it. We want to get it too. We're praying for humility. We're praying for ears to hear his truth from the other person. We're praying the words of Proverbs 25, that the right words spoken at the right time would come from our lips. We're praying for relational reconciliation. We're praying that love would overflow, that Jesus would be glorified for strength, for boldness, for kindness and compassion. We're praying that the real enemy, the devil, would have no place in our and their heart and mind to do his evil work. And we're praying for the faith to trust God's perfect work in both lives, regardless of the outcome. Now, here's the deal. We aren't praying all of this because God needs to know it, or he needs us to pray it to already be working in each of those areas. We are praying it because one of the primary outcomes of prayer is that it aligns our hearts with his. And if we are going to represent Jesus well, we need our hearts to be aligned with his. 
especially as we move into the I in our acronym. I stands for investigate my motives. Obviously, the ideal is that our motives are aligned with Jesus for the situation. This can be a really complex issue, though. We don't always know what our own motives are. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Even Christ followers can be self-righteous and self-focused, two things that don't make redemptive conversations very successful. It makes them challenging. And then there's the pain. Don't get me wrong. If the other person is doing something that hurts you, it still needs to stop. By the time we get to the place where one of these conversations is necessary, there is often a lot of baggage that we're carrying into the conversation with us. We've been hurt. We might be angry. They've embarrassed us in front of other people. They've mistreated us. We've, they've walked all over our boundaries. There's lots of pain, which also makes it harder to sift through all of that junk and clean up your motives. Successful, redemptive conversations don't let those emotions lead the way. We don't ignore them either, but we don't give them the power to control the conversation. Successful, redemptive conversations also aren't motivated by putting someone else in their place or bringing them down a notch or winning at any cost. Though it is not always possible, successful conversations look for win-win scenarios which is a complex issue in and of itself. In my years before Dayspring, it was put on my plate to fire someone. Wendy was a great person. She just didn't fit the organization as hard as we tried. And believe me, we tried many conversations with her over time. So I called her into my office and I freed her to explore God's plan for her life somewhere else. The win for the organization was her leaving the organization. The short-term win for her was that she was fired at the end of a process that honored her and called her to something better. She walked out of my office, still my friend, for years afterward. Even now, really, it's just that life ebbs and flows, and sometimes God takes people out of your circle. The long-term win for her was that because she wasn't a good fit for the organization, she would have felt the pressure to make herself less than God had intended her, that designed her to be, in order to fit the organization, which wouldn't be healthy in the long term. And it allowed her to find a better fit for the way she was wired somewhere else. Our motive is to bring about the best possible outcome for both parties. If we want to honor Jesus, uh, that's the way it has to work. If you have to dishonor someone to get your way, then it isn't God's way yet. Which brings us up to C. C is for compassion. In order to really consider what the best possible outcome for the other person might be, we need a heart of compassion. Uh, put another way, we need to empathize with their perspective. We're going to do our best to understand their motives. Nobody does anything that is illogical to their way of thinking. That, that doesn't mean they're right, just that it made sense to them when they did it. If we can figure out what that was, what made sense to them, we'll have a better chance of figuring out a pathway forward. But here's my caution. 
If we have trouble understanding our own motives at times, what's our track record with someone else's? You're trying to understand them. You're moving toward relationship, as we learned last week, which means that because they are a jerk isn't the right answer. That's not empathy. That's judgment. You are trying to understand their motives, not decide what their motives are. You're not assigning motives to them. No one's motive is, I'm a jerk, so I'm going to act like a jerk. It could be that you were a jerk first, and they just responded in kind. But that's different. Assume the best. When I'm in one of these redemptive conversations, I will say something like, I know that you probably didn't mean to hurt my feelings. Or, I know you'd never intentionally try to make me feel small. When I say something like that, I'm communicating that even though they hurt me, I know they didn't mean to hurt me, which goes a long way in moving toward relationship. Listen, in most of these cases, you can be right or you can have relationship. Most of the time, you can't have both. I'd rather have a successful conversation that births something new than get stuck in a vicious cycle of did not, did too, did not, did too. In the end, most of the time, their motive doesn't matter. I don't care why they did it. I just don't want them to do it again. Make sense? Okay, after putting yourself in their shoes, to increase your understanding, the next thing we're going to do is acknowledge. A is for acknowledge. We're going to acknowledge our role in the problem. We're going to own our part of the conflict. I've coached more of these conversations than I can count. Here's one thing that's true. There's always enough blame to go around. In every situation, let alone every conflict, there is my perspective your perspective, and somewhere in the middle is the truth. All of those assumptions and filters and biases and unresolved issues in my life color the way I see everything. That's my perspective. And it is different than yours. And both exist simultaneously. Now, let me illustrate it this way. Those of you who are on site should have received a smaller version of this die. Why don't you grab it right now? Uh, for those of you online, uh, sorry, neither Captain Kirk nor Captain Picard have offered us the use of a teleporter to beam things to you. This is one of the perks of actually being here in person. You get this nine-cent visual reminder of this illustration. <laughs> this die represents truth. But the number you see depends on your perspective. Online, you see one number. But some of the people on the sides of the room probably see a different number. And no one but me sees what I see. Who's right? Perspective matters. Our understanding of the truth is always impacted by our perspective. That's not to say that the problem in every situation is 50-50. It might be 25-75 or 90-10. So whatever is your part, own it. If you are 10% of the problem, own 100% of your 10%. Don't make excuses for it. If it's 25%, own 100% of your 
except for the fact that Jesus is perfect and would always need to own 0%, that's what he'd do. In fact, if you think about it, he owned our 100% at the cross. So there is that. Take your cues from him. Okay, so far we have P for pray, I for investigate my motives, C for compassion, and A for acknowledge. Next up is R for resolution. What does resolution look like? Define the win. How will you know that the conversation has been successful when it is over? You have to know what you are aiming for. If you are the boss, the win for you might be that they agree to never be late again, which means for them, the win is that they get to keep their job. The win doesn't have to mean that everyone compromises, though when it comes to personal preferences, that might be the case. But bad behavior still needs to stop. There is no compromise there. What are you calling the other person to? Now, this is where it is helpful to consider the root of an issue, not the symptom. I'm coaching some married friends through a few life issues. She has an unhealthy relationship with her mother-in-law. She feels like her mother-in-law expects her to be just like her mother-in-law, be the kind of wife she is, the kind of mother she was. And that mold was broken when God created her mother-in-law. That's just not who my friend is. The symptom is how she receives any comments her mother-in-law makes. They always make her feel small. They make her feel like she isn't enough as a mom or a wife, like she doesn't measure up. The root issue is that my friend has unresolved issues in her own life that her mother-in-law triggers by accident or on purpose. We don't know because we aren't assigning motives. We're believing the best, so let's just say it's accident, by accident. My friend is working on taking away the power of those triggers. She's working on believing that she is the best mom for her kids because God entrusted them to her care. She's working on believing that she is the best wife for her husband. She's working on rewriting those negative soundtracks that run through her mind that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Healing root issues takes time. It sure would help if her mother-in-law would give her the space to do that without triggering her. She needs to have a conversation with her mother-in-law. For whatever reason, good, bad, or indifferent, those comments are triggering her. So the win would be that her mother-in-law's probably careless words would stop, giving her the space to process her deeper issues. The win for her mother-in-law would be that she understands why those comments aren't helpful and make my friend feel small. I'm pretty sure her mother-in-law would be heartbroken to understand the anguish she is causing my friend. Figure out the win. What does a redemptive resolution look like. Leading us to D. D is for determine the parameters of the conversation. Every situation has its own context, so you're going to have to figure out what works best for your context. But here are some things to consider. First, who has the power? If you are the employee and you need to have a conversation with your boss, you don't have the power which means that you're going to tailor your approach to that 
a context. You probably don't want to go into their office with guns blazing. It might be better to get them out of that context. Maybe take them out for coffee or go on a walk. If you are the boss, you're the one in power. Your words will have more impact because you are the boss. So consider them carefully and consider the setting. Do you really need to sit behind your desk in the power position? Could the conversation be held more casually and still accomplish what it needs to accomplish? Even if you are peers, things probably aren't, all things probably aren't equal. In most peer relationships, someone is usually the adult. Uh, that might be because they're older or more spiritually or emotionally mature or their life role adds a certain amount of emotional pressure. I'm a pastor. I'm not just a pastor when I'm at work. I'm always a pastor. There's a certain amount of street cred that goes with the job where this kind of stuff is concerned. It's probably the only street cred I get. Uh, th that means <laughs> that most of the time I sit in the power seat. If I'm not careful with my words, I could crush someone simply because of my spiritual authority. I don't want to do that. Though for the record, I have. I don't always get this right. From whichever position you are in, you want to set the conversation up for the win. I have a sofa and comfortable chairs in my office so that I never have to have a conversation from a power position. The context helps relax people, and they're more comfortable anyway. Look for ways to neutralize the setting and the power dynamic. Uh, a second thing to consider is the emotional temperature of the situation. How hot is it? The more emotional it is for either party, the harder it will be to have a successful conversation. Conversations birthed in anger generally aren't redemptive. Neither are conversations where one person is apathetic to the problem. As a general rule, you don't have these kinds of conversations when you aren't in control of your emotions. That's not to say that you can't be emotional during the conversation, but don't let your emotions lead you. A third thing to determine is whether or not there should be a third party in the room. Uh, in our Christian context, Matthew 18 outlines a process where when someone sins against you, uh, you start with a one-on-one -on -one conversation. The second step is a conversation with a witness. But that might not be the only occasion for a third party. Women, if a man has been hitting on you and you want, him to want it to stop, it'd probably be better to have a third party there or vice versa, men. If you have a track record of unsuccessful conversations with the person, you might want a third party present. If you speak apples and they hear oranges, you might want someone who can interpret and facilitate. The caution is that a third party always ups the ante, which uh, it, it, it communicates a level of formality, which could hinder the, a successful conversation about something that should be more informal. Use wisdom. Now, there are more parameters to consider. For example, the depth of your relationship can determine your approach. The deeper the relationship you have with someone, the more relational equity you have, which on the upside means that they already have a pretty good picture of your heart, which smooths over the, the rough edges. On the downside, it also means you have more to lose if the conversation completely tanks. And some people are quick with words. Others need time. Maybe you need to write out what you're going to say. It's okay to write it out 
and then read it to them. Don't send it to them. Read it face to face. Redemptive conversations don't happen via text or email. Body language communicates more than your words, and your tone of voice says more than your words. How you say it matters. That only happens face to face. There's more, but we need to keep moving. The bottom line here is that you want to think through the parameters, the logistics of the conversation, and try to remove or neutralize any factor that might negatively impact the conversation. We finally made it to the second phase, ignition. How are you going to begin the conversation? Again, we're looking to have successful redemptive conversations. So, do you want to blow it up from the get-go? Probably not. The more defensive they are or you are, the harder you have to work to get past that. Because context matters, you're going to have to figure this one out on your own, but here are some suggestions to get us started. Number one, you could start with, I owe you an apology, and then own your junk. Or it could be, I owe you an apology, because I should have had this conversation with you a long time ago, and I didn't honor you by telling you the truth. A second approach could be, I need to ask you a favor. I'm working on something in my life, and when you do that thing, even though I know you don't mean it that way, it triggers my insecurities. This might be a good conversation starter for my friend to have with her mother-in-law. Third, how do you think our relationship is going? Or, on a scale of 1 to 10, where 1 is a disaster and 10 is perfect, how would you rate our relationship? And then listen. Okay, a 7. What would help it become an 8? And then listen. You know, that's really interesting. I don't think I could say 7. I think it's about a four from my perspective. And then because you've modeled this as you listen to them, hopefully they listen. And by the way, I can't tell you how many times that what will make the relationship move from a seven to an eight for them is the same thing that will make it move to a five for you. A fourth option might be, I know you don't intend to, or I, I know you don't mean to, but even though you don't mean to, here's the problem it creates. When you do this, this is what it does in me. A fifth option could be, I'm having trouble understanding something. Can you help me understand why you, or it feels like we aren't on the same page about this. Can you help me understand where you're coming from? Now, do you see the pattern? In each of these examples, I'm lobbing the ball softly into their court, not pulling the pin on a grenade. I want to de-escalate the tension, not add to it. With each of these conversation starters, you are communicating humility. You're communicating that there might be something that you don't understand that you want to understand. You are inviting them in, not pushing them away. Look for ways to get into the conversation like that. The other option results in more cleanup later, and I'm all about avoiding cleanup when I can. While we are here, 
let me suggest that you watch your language. Yes, that means that we follow the Apostle Paul's instructions in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, don't use foul or abusive language. That kind of language never de-escalates the tension. But watching your language also means thinking about how you phrase things. I'd stay away from you statements, like you did this, or you said that, and stick to I statements. I know you probably didn't mean it like this, but the message I received from you was that I'm not enough. People can and will argue with you about what you say they did, what you say they said, or what you say they meant. But it's hard to argue with someone who says, this is how I feel. This ties back into being right or having relationship. Most of the time, things go sour in conversations because we want to prove to them that we were justified in our response of what they said or did. We want to blame them, and we want them to own that blame. We want to be right. So we try to essentially reenact the, conver the original conversation, which rarely works, even if they are to blame. But honestly, does it really matter most of the time anyway? Can we just acknowledge that last week's conversation was a failure and chart a course forward? Does someone have to win and someone have to lose? When we choose relationship over being right, it leads to redemptive conversations because it points to the future. It doesn't get stuck in the past. It's plain to win in the long run, even if it means ignoring something in the short run. You choose your battles wisely. Of course, sometimes you have to go back and try to reconstruct what happened. Just be careful about how you do it. Bringing us to phase three, launch. This is where the meat of your conversation happens. I'm not going to say much here because all of the things we talked about last week should lead the way. This has now become a real-time conversation and you want to listen for understanding, ask clarifying questions, and watch body language, both yours and theirs. Watch last week's message if you need a refresher. One thing we're going to want to try to do is keep the train on the tracks headed for your win. Don't let someone derail the train. Should that happen, it's okay to rein it in. You might say something like, I am, I am totally willing to have that conversation with you at another time, but we need to resolve this issue first. Or can we just put a pin in that so we remember it for our next conversation? Also, if it isn't going well, or the emotional temperature is rising and anger or tears are beginning to take over, it's okay to say, hey, it feels like we might have a more successful conversation if we ask Joe to come in and help facilitate. Even if you've done everything right up to this point, you are only half of the equation. If the conversation begins to circle the drain, you can stop it. You know, Mary, maybe we should reschedule this when things aren't as emotionally charged. When things go south, throw a flag on the play. As we talked about last week, time out. You don't want it to get worse, you want it to get better. And then phase four, the landing. Now, before you land, 
you've got to make sure that you've said everything that needs said. Assuming the best for a moment, generally what happens is they're sorry. You're sorry. You have a heart connection, so you soften your words a little too much, and you leave out the last 10%, which is actually the most important part of the conversation. It's the line in the sand. It's the or else. Like, they are so sorry they're always late. They'll never be late again. But what happens when they are late again? In the context of work, that last 10% might be they'll lose their job. In the context of a friendship, it might be, Sally, thank you for committing to being on time in the future. I just need to add this last thing, or I'll be kicking myself all night long. I'm believing the best, but I, but I will stop getting together with you if it happens again. Now, you see, when the conversation has gone well, that feels a little harsh. But this is your path forward. That's how Sally knows how to rebuild trust. And if you don't say it and they are late again, then what? Another year before it builds up and you have to have another conversation? <laughs> Wouldn't it be better to just draw a line in the sand and make sure everybody understands the consequences for the future? And then when Sally is late next time, you don't wait for her. You give her five minutes or 10 if that is reasonable. I mean, don't be a jerk about it. And then you leave. You can always text her and say, hey, Sally, since you aren't here when we planned, something must have come up. I'm headed home now. And when she tells you, oh, I'm on my way, just 15 minutes out, or she tries to schedule again, in love, you tell her the truth. I'm sorry, Sally, that won't work for me. Obviously, that's a simple example, but you get the point. If you don't communicate the last 10%, then you're stuck on the merry-go-round that never ends. It's okay to have a necessary ending to you waiting around for Sally. And then, after you've communicated that last 10%, you can bring it home. Thank you for taking the time to hear my heart today. I really value our friendship, or our working relationship, or whatever the context. Here's what I'm taking away from this conversation. Uh, I'm committing to do this. You're committing to do that. Have I got that right? And then if the context allows, close in prayer. Invite Jesus into those commitments. Those commitments are your path forward to rebuilding trust. Make sure the path is clear or you'll just end up frustrated later when you have expectations they aren't meeting and vice versa. And you find yourself back here in the same place again. Who wants that? Redemptive conversations honor Jesus from phase one through phase four and to infinity and beyond. <laughs> which, which means the process also honors both parties. Because that's what love requires. Let's pray. Father, I, I know that in these moments there are many people in this room who are already thinking of a conversation that they need to have. Or maybe a conversation that they've had recently that didn't go the way it should have.
Or maybe they got it right. Who knows? As, uh, as a follower of Christ, my, like my plan A would be that I never have to have hard conversations again. That things just always roll along smoothly, that there's never any miscommunication or misunderstanding, that the gap is always small. But we know that that's not reality. And if we're honest, we know that your plan A is that we learn how to dive into those moments to become more like Jesus. So regardless of what situation we are facing now or in the future, may we keep that goal in mind, that you are doing something in me. You want to grow me up, and I want to be obedient to whatever that needs to look like. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions, alone or with others, will help the truth of God's Word find its place in your life. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen, or you can call the church during the week. This ministry is made possible because of people like you, people who believe in what God is doing through Dayspring. Your financial generosity is evidence of God's work in your life. If you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is a responsibility of our Dayspringers. Just enjoy the rest of your day. If you'd like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website, or text GIVE to the number on your screen, or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Also, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you are on, maybe even rating us where that is appropriate. It is really encouraging to me when you share something that has impacted you through this service with someone else. Until we meet again, may the God of all peace give you peace at all times and in every situation.